John Cassis is one of the nation's finest uh, motivational speakers, and he was one of the inspirational leaders of the Chicago Bears during their glory years, and he often gave short talks to players on game day. So listen to uh, how John tells this story, and remember, this was during the glory days of the Bears. Mike Ditka was about to deliver a locker room pep talk one day, and he looked up and saw defensive tackle William Refrigerator Perry, okay? Big guy, right? How could he not see him? At 338 pounds, the fridge stood out even in a crowd of pro football players. Ditka gestured to the fridge. He says, when I get finished my talk, he says, I'd like you to close with the Lord's Prayer. And then the coach began his talk. Meanwhile, Jim McMahon, the, bat, the brash and outspoken quarterback, punched John Cassis and he says, look at Perry. Look at him. He doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Sure enough, Perry sat there with a look of panic on his face. His head in his hands and he was sweating profusely. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, said Cassis to McMahon in disbelief. And after a few minutes of watching the refrigerator leaking several gallons of sweat, McMahon nudged Cassis again. I'll bet you 50 bucks that the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. As Cassis tells the story, he stops to reflect on the absurdity of it all. Here we were sitting in a chapel and betting 50 bucks on the Lord's Prayer. When Coach Ditka finished his pep talk, he asked all the men to remove their caps. Then he nodded at Perry and bowed his head. And it was quiet for a few moments before the fridge finally spoke in a shaky voice. And he said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Cassis felt the tap on his shoulder, and it was Jim McMahon. He says, here's the 50 bucks, he whispered. I had no idea Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) In case you're wondering, and unable to figure it out, um, this is going to be a sermon on prayer. (laughs) Prayer that wields power. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Wherefore, let thy voice rise like a fountain night and day. So read the words of Alfred Tennyson in Idols of the King. Written over a hundred years ago, these short words of prose make up the basis of what God is inviting us to today. He wants us to be people of prayer. We ought to be people who pray. We need to be people who not only believe in it, but people who are exercised in it. And it doesn't have to be very complicated. Simple, heartfelt prayer yields supernatural results. Amen? One of my favorite stories, and I've told it many times here before, of, of prayer is one told by the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. It's an encounter of a bishop and three hermits who lived on a on a a very remote island. And as I've heard the story, while en route across the ocean, a ship carrying the bishop stopped at this island for a day. And while they were there, the bishop decided to walk on the beach, and he came across these three hermits. And noticing his ecclesiastical robes, they inquired and found out that he was a Christian leader. And excitedly, they professed, we're Christians too. 
And as their broken discussion turned to the subject of prayer, the bishop wondered how they prayed. What did they say in their prayers? And their prayer of intimacy and love was very simple, like they were. They were very simple people. And they spoke to God in this way, and here's their prayer. We are three, you are three. Have mercy on us. Amen. That was their prayer. Miracles sometimes happened when they prayed that prayer, they said. The bishop, however, hearing this, decided that their primitive nature of prayer would not do, and they needed guidance in proper prayer. So uh, the hermits were very slow to learn, but this bishop taught them how to pray the Lord's Prayer. They were very willing learners, and before the bishop sailed away the next day, they could recite the prayer with absolutely no mistakes. So the bishop set sail, proud and pleased to have enlightened the souls of such simple men, And when they were a distance from the land, suddenly off the stern of the ship, the bishop saw this huge ball of bright light skimming across the ocean. And it got closer and closer until he could see that it was the three hermits running on top of the water. And one of the, on board the ship, they said to the bishop, Bishop, we were very sorry, but we've forgotten some of that lovely prayer that you taught us. We say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then we forget the rest. Would you please teach us the prayer again? And shaken by what he just witnessed, the bishop shook his head and he meekly replied, Forget everything I taught you. Go back and continue to pray your old way. Say, we are three, you are three, have mercy on us. And I love that story because it so poignantly shows us how foolish we sometimes think we are, we sometimes are, about the simple practice of prayer and how blind we are to its spiritual power. We think we have to control it and organize it and structure it and do all this stuff to it, and it's time we opened our eyes. This morning, my hope is that Luke, the beloved physician, the writer of the third gospel, the historian of Acts, the only non-Jewish writer of New Testament scripture, the close friend of Paul, will help us to regain our spiritual eyesight concerning this importance of prayer in the life of the church. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In this chapter, Luke unapologetically puts right before our faces the fact that prayer is the means by which the people of God will triumph over evil. Prayer is powerful. And he reminds us, as the story of the three hermits reminded the bishop, that simple heartfelt prayer can often yield superhuman, supernatural results. And that is still true today. Acts chapter 12. Now, before we begin, I need to point out something about this chapter that is extremely significant if you're taking notes. Practically, this whole chapter, at least the first 24 verses, is out of chronological order in the Scripture. If we were to put it in sequence, the events of chapter 12, verses 1 to 24, should really be placed after verse 26, in between verse 26 and 27. A historical study shows that the famine mentioned in 1127 through 30 occurred in A.D. 46. I'm sorry, did I say that 12, 1 to 24 should be placed between 1126 and 1127? That's what I meant to clarify. 
Okay, it occurred, the famine occurred in AD 46 while the death of Herod mentioned in chapter 12 verses 20 to 23, which we'll see later, happened in 44 AD, which was before the famine. So all that to say that this segment of scripture we're going to look at is a little bit out of order. Now you think, why in the world would Luke do that? He's the chronological guy. He's the guy that writes historically. He puts it in chronological consecutive order. Why would he do this? And I think the answer is very simple. He wants to make a theological point. He wants to make a very strong theological point that prayer is powerful. And it has powerful results. It is the means by which the people of God will triumph over evil in the world. Before Luke continues to paint the picture in Acts of how Christianity spread through to the Gentiles, primarily through the work of Paul's missionary activities, beginning with chapter 13, he backs up and he gives us this little vignette to show us that God intervenes supernaturally in the spread of his kingdom and in the lives of those who are serving him through the means of prayer, through the means of prayer. It shouldn't surprise us that Luke would do this. Now, why do I say that? Because Luke, among all the gospel writers, emphasized the prayer life of Jesus in his gospel on numerous occasions. It was Luke who showed us that the Lord's Prayer was given as Jesus' response to his disciples when they interrupted him in prayer and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And it was in response to that that Luke records Jesus' teaching them the Lord's Prayer. It was Luke alone who recorded for us the parable of the publican and the Pharisee in the synagogue where the publican was beating his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And the Pharisee was all proud about how he tithed and prayed and all that stuff. That was Luke. Only Luke that did that. It was also Luke who paid attention to the how, when, where, and for what patterns which Jesus practiced in his own prayer life. You see, it was Luke that noticed that if prayer was important for Jesus, the head of the church, then it should be important for us, the body of the church. And so here, in Acts chapter 12, he throws this 24-verse spotlight on why prayer should be emphatically employed in our own lives. Why? Because prayer is the means by which the people of God will triumph over evil in the world. Number one, Luke says, powerful prayer emerges in impossible situations. It emerges in impossible situations. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. We're going to work through this text verse by verse. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Underline verse 5. Fervent prayer is born out of great need. 
Is that right? When do you pray the most fervently? When you have a need, right? Great need. Luke wasted no time in showing us that the situation was very, very extreme. Herod had arrested some believers for no other purpose than to mistreat them, and he had put James, one of the 12, John's brother, to death. He was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. He made an example of him, and he did it for likely two reasons. Number one, to put fear into the church, and number two, to win popularity with the Jews. You see, Herod was a hideous kind of guy. His family was hated by the masses because of their tyrannical leadership style of the past. In order to save face and gain some political ground, he took every opportunity to win the appreciation of the people. When in Rome, he was politically correct. When he was in Jerusalem, he acted like an observant Jew. He was a chameleon who tried to please his constituents wherever he was. Sound familiar? Historically, the Herods were despised by the Jews. So when Herod saw this opportunity to gain their favor by persecuting this new thing called the church, which the Jews hated, he wasted no time. He arrested James, the leader of the church, and had him beheaded. This, by the way, was a fulfillment of Jesus' words to James and John in Matthew chapter 20, in verses 20 to 23, when James and John were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, and they wanted to sit on his right hand and his left in the resurrection, and Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup which I am about to drink? And they said, we can drink it. And Jesus said, you will drink it. But for me to give you those places, that's not for me to do. And so here it is. They, James had drunk the cup that Jesus was talking about, the cup of martyrdom, suffering. And that act had its intended effect because the Jews were absolutely overjoyed that Herod had put James to death. Herod's popularity skyrocketed. Look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded then to arrest Peter also, and it was during the days of unleavened bread. So seeking to gain a few more points on the popularity polls, he went a step further and he arrested Peter, a pillar in the church, a recognized leader. He planned on bringing him to public trial after the eight-day Passover celebration was over, and basically Peter's death warrant was signed. Herod wanted this Christianity thing squelched once and for all. But Peter had escaped once before in Acts chapter 5. If you read, want to read that, it's in 19 to 25. And Peter, after he escaped, continued spreading the good news of the gospel. And not wanting to be made a fool of again, Herod assigned 16 soldiers to guard Peter. That's four squads of four men each. And they probably rotated their watch every six hours. So at any given time, Peter was being guarded by four men. Two were chained to him at the wrists, and two were outside the door of his prison cell. It's an impossible situation for Peter, isn't it? But as Herod waited for the seven days of unleavened bread to end, 
What does verse 5 says? say? The church had this opportunity to do what? To pray. Not to formulate a SWAT team, but to pray. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Verse 5 is the absolute hinge upon which this entire narrative swings. Underline that one. The church was doing exactly what it needed to be doing here, praying fervently. It wasn't just the formality. This was prayer with intensity, agonizing white-hot prayer. In fact, Luke uses the same word here to describe it that he used in the gospel when he was describing Jesus' agonizing, blood-sweating prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Agonizing prayer, fervent prayer. See, when you're faced with an impossible situation, there's no time for formality, is there? Not really. Your prayer sounds like, help me, help me, help me, right? You don't have time for fancy words, fancy outlines. I want you to know that the power of prayer is not measured by the formality or the quantity of your words, but by the simplicity and the intensity of your heart. Let me say that again. The power of prayer is not measured by the formality or the quantity of your words, but by the simplicity and the intensity of your heart. Notice the contrast here. Peter was bound, but prayer was loosed. The early church understood this necessity of prayer. Acts chapter 2 says that they continually devoted themselves to it. Do we? Do we? I remember years ago on a couple of different occasions, someone collapsed in this church on a Sunday morning service. Right back there, as a matter of fact. Had to be taken out of our Sunday service and brought directly to the hospital. And as a church, we immediately went to prayer for that person. Stopped the service, went directly to prayer. That's a good thing, isn't it? It emerged because we were faced with an impossible situation. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you remember that happening in your life or right here in this church service? Have you ever remembered seeing that happen? Does that mean that we're under the impression that we can handle ordinary life without God and pray only when we think we're facing the impossible? Every single day we're faced with impossible situations. When we forget the weight of that truth, we begin to get lazy and we don't pray. We send our kids off to school unprotected. It's just another ordinary day. We leave our marriages unguarded. It's just another ordinary day. And we start the day spiritually undernourished and we wonder why we struggle in our spiritual growth. Because they're just ordinary days. But God doesn't give us ordinary days, does he? Throughout Scripture, we're encouraged to pray unceasingly, strenuously, audaciously, and daringly. And I, I, I ask, are you committed to those truths, to those kinds of prayers? 
Because God delights to respond to daring prayer, doesn't he? Daring to pray for the impossible to happen. He encourages us to ask as freely for the impossible as we do for the seemingly easy because to him it's all the same. Is that right? It's all the same to him. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Just get an email about Marilee's situation overseas, getting ready to be hit with a typhoon, asked for prayer, got an email saying the typhoon shifted directions and went in another way. Wasn't going to hit him at all. And the people where she is said that that was absolutely miraculous. Now, was that a weather pattern or was that an answer to prayer? What do you believe? Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17 says this, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing's too difficult for you. Peter's situation looked impossible here in Acts chapter 12. You may be locked up in your own impossible situation, a trying illness, a difficult relationship, a financial impasse. You feel chained at both arms to the twin emotions of helplessness and hopelessness. You must pray. Not because you've tried everything else, but because without it you will not survive. Henry Nouwen wrote, whenever you feel a little prayer can't do any harm, you'll find that it doesn't do much good either. Because prayer has meaning only if it is necessary and indispensable. Prayer is prayer only when we say that without it, we cannot live. Prayer is the means by which the people of God triumphs over evil in the world. Amen. It is powerful. It emerges in the midst of impossible situations. Secondly, we learn from Luke here in Acts chapter 12 that fervent prayer empowers us against impenetrable odds. Look at verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to pray him forward, to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. This all seems quite bizarre, doesn't it? And he went out and continued to follow and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Sounds like a movie. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What a phenomenal passage of Scripture this is. Prayer is spiritual warfare. It is. Somebody asked me this morning, just out of the blue, I thought it was out of the blue, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing all right. Good, because I've been praying for you because I just feel like this spiritual warfare going on. 
There's no way she could have known what was going on in my life. No way. You may be doing the math in your head, right? This thing about Peter. Peter's sleeping between the two soldiers, and then an angel of the Lord appeared and delivers him miraculously. And you're doing the math, and you're thinking to yourself, why in the world didn't God do that for James? How come God let him have his head cut off? Did Peter have more faith than James? What was the church praying harder for Peter? After all, wasn't James an equally instrumental person in the church? And you have these questions, right? We have them when, when they touch us deeply in our own life. Why in the world did that person not die from that illness, but, but my spouse did? Here's the answer. God is on the throne. That's the best I can do. And you know what? That's the best you can do. I already pointed out that James's death was foretold by Jesus earlier, so it was going to happen. But more than that, I think the contrast of James's death and Peter's rescue emphasizes another important theological principle which we must embrace, and it's this. Jesus is Lord and God alone is sovereign. We never know when God will perform a miracle, but we can always pray for one. And we can trust Him with the outcome no matter what it is. People who get all fired up about a lack of faith when someone is not healed, I submit to you, do not really act like Jesus is Lord. Our prayers in and of themselves don't heal anyone. They don't deliver anyone. They don't do anything. Now you're thinking, before you brand me a heretic, I want you to listen to me closely. It is God who does the work. It is God who does the work. There are no guaranteed formulas. There is simply trust in God's sovereignty, and prayer is the means by which God delivers us from evil. The only guarantee that we have is that when our prayers are in perfect accordance with His will, His sovereign will, that we will have what we ask for. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And also in John's gospel, chapter 14. I won't go to those verses. You can look them up later on your own. But basically, First John chapter 5, 14 and 15 says, if we, we know we have the answers to our requests if we are praying exactly in perfect sync with His will. And sometimes we don't know what that is. But Romans 8 says the Spirit intercedes for us because the Spirit knows what His will is. So when we pray in God's will perfectly synced with His, we have what we ask for. And that's what the phrase in Jesus' name means. When you put that on the end of your prayer, it's not just a bookend, folks. Although it seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? It's literally basically saying, according to God's will, thy will be done. And we don't always know what that is again, but the Spirit does. Friends, you and I need to embrace three unchanging things when we pray. Three unchanging things when we pray. Number one, God is on the throne. Number two, we are on His mind. And number three, He always does what is best for us and most glorifying to Him. Can I say those again? God is on the throne. 
we are on his mind, and he always does what is best for us and most glorifying to him. That should settle the unrest inside of us just a little bit. And it did Peter. Did you notice Peter's confidence in the sovereignty of God? Look at verse 6 again. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, it says, Peter was what? Say it again. And again. Really? Are you kidding me? Peter's sleeping. Would you be sleeping? I've lost a ton of sleep over much more trivial things, haven't you? But maybe he learned a lesson from Jesus in, in Mark and Luke and Matthew. All record this. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Uh, let's just look at it. I'll take the time. Because Peter probably learned from this little situation. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd, they took with him, him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern. Doing what? He's sleeping. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you even care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and he said, hush, be still. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And, there, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then they were really afraid, right? Well, who is this guy? Why was Jesus asleep in the boat? Anybody know? Because God is sovereign, exactly right. Why was Peter sleeping in the prison? Because God is sovereign. God's sovereign. It seems that Peter has so entrusted himself to the sovereignty of God that he was able to sleep soundly. So soundly, in fact, that the angel, this is comical, the angel had to shake him to wake him. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. Hey, get up! I have a son. My oldest son, he's like a bear. If anybody knows, any of you know him, he's, he's a big guy. And when he used to live at home before he got married, and we used to have to wake him up in the morning, let me tell you what, there was no waking that kid up. He's like rolling, rolling, rolling. Josh, get up! Uh, I get this picture here. You get struck by an angel, you wake up. Peter had been in prison twice before and delivered from that. But the fact that he had been there and done that, I don't think that made him arrogant. In fact, after James's cruel death, I'm sure Peter thought the odds were pretty much against him and he wasn't getting out of this one alive. So how could he be so calm? Well, along with the sovereignty of God, I think I have another suggestion. And it should help us when the odds are stacked against us. It was prayer. The fervent prayer of others as well as our own can settle our spirits down. Prayer empowers us against impenetrable odds. 
in at least three ways. Number one, by refreshing us with the comfort of God's peace. Have you ever felt that people were praying for you in your difficult situation? How did it help you deal? You feel that peace come over you? Philippians chapter 4, we just went through this when I preached through Philippians. It really is true. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Number two, prayer renews us with a confidence in God's Word. Warren Wiersbe points out, prayer has a way of reminding us of the promises of God's truth. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10. Do not be afraid. I am with you, God says. I am your God. Let nothing terrify you. I will make you strong and I will help you. I will protect you and I will save you. Those great words. God gave me those words last week for some reason. I happened to hear them or run across them, and I put it on a post-it note, stuck it on my desk, Isaiah 41.10. Did you know that you are absolutely invincible until God decides that your work on earth is done? Maybe Peter knew Herod couldn't kill him because Jesus had already revealed something to Peter back in John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. After that resurrection appearance and Jesus restores Peter when he said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. And they're walking along and Jesus says to him, Peter, you know what? You're going to get to be an old man and someone's going to take you where you don't want to go and do something to you that you don't want done. And he was referring to how he was going to die. Well, Peter's not an old man yet. Jesus said that Peter was going to die an old man on a Roman cross. Peter didn't know how he was going to get out of this jam, but he wasn't worried enough about it to lose sleep over it, obviously. How much sleep have you lost in the last year over things a whole lot less serious than that? Number three, prayer reminds us of the compassion of God's heart. Peter knew that the Father loved and cared deeply for him, and Peter loved and trusted in his Father. That's how years later, Peter could convincingly write comforting words to others suffering for the faith in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, and I love the way the Living Bible translates it. It says, let him have all your worries and cares, for he is always thinking about you and watching everything that concerns you. You believe that? He does. Richard Foster, in his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, gives this illustration of how our anxiety and our restlessness is overcome by God's compassionate heart. He writes, One day a friend of mine was walking through a shopping mall with his two-year-old son, and the child was in a particularly cantankerous mood, fussing and fuming. You ever have a child like that? Frustrated father tried everything to quiet his son, but nothing was helping. Child would not obey. Then under some special inspiration, the father just scooped up his son, 
holding him close to his chest. I'm wondering if at first he was just like holding him close to his chest. And then he began singing this impromptu love song to his child. None of the words rhymed. He sang off key, and yet as best he could, this father began sharing his heart, singing, I love you. I'm so glad you're my boy. You make me happy. I love the way you laugh. And on and on it went from store to store to store to store. And quietly the father continued singing off key, making up words that didn't rhyme. And the child relaxed and became still, listening to this strange, wonderful song. Finally, they finished shopping and went to the car. And as the father opened the door and prepared to buckle his son into the car seat, the child lifted up his head, looked at the father, and said simply, Sing it to me again, Daddy. Sing it to me again. You see, prayer is powerful that way. It gathers us up into the Father's arms and allows Him to sing to us peaceful sleep in the midst of a very trying situation. And as David so beautifully wrote for the choir director in Psalm 4, verse 8, he said, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for Thou alone, O Lord, dost make me to dwell in safety. See, not only will prayer help us to be at peace when we're surrounded by an impossible situation, but it also gives us the power to obey Him in that situation. Look at verse 8, Acts 12. The angel said to him, gird, your loin, your, gird up yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. He said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. They went out and continued to follow, and he didn't know that was, what was being done was real. They passed the first guard, the second guard, and they came to the iron gate, and it opened by itself. Immediately, the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he knew. He knew that it was his angel that God sent forth to rescue him. God will do the extraordinary at times. He will. But we are never relieved from our responsibility to do the ordinary. Peter had to follow. Peter had to obey. Peter had to do everything the angel told him to do. And he was miraculously rescued. Just as the Israelites were delivered on the first Passover from the bondage of Egypt, so on this Passover, Peter was freed from the prison of Herod. Listen, friends, there is, not a, there is not a lock in your life that God cannot pick, a chain that He cannot break, a gate He cannot open, or a shackle He cannot release you from. You may be in an emotional or physical spiritual prison right now, but God is on the throne. There are no bonds that can hold you. Nothing is impossible for God. Prayer is the means by which God's people triumph over evil. Powerful prayer emerges from impossible situations. Fervent prayer empowers us against impenetrable odds. But in almost a humorous turn of events, Luke shows us also, thirdly, that answered prayer sometimes emphasizes the immaturity of our own faith. Look at verses 12 to 17. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate. What? But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. She was all excited. Poor girl. But Peter continued knocking. Hey, 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 come back here. 
And when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed, it says. They were amazed, wouldn't you be? Four guards, locked prison cell, middle of the night. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of that prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. Different James. The church was praying fervently in verse 5. Remember that? They prayed continually in verse 12. But here we see that they prayed a little skeptically. A little skeptically, right? So much for the word of faith preachers that claim that God will not deliver if there is any trace of doubt. Seriously. This is a hilarious story right here. This is so like us, isn't it? While we fervently pray, the answer may come knocking on the door and we argue about whether this is really from God. Don't we do that? It's not that their faith was small, but their response shows that their expectations were low. That's what happens to us. We believe God can do, but oftentimes we don't expect that He will do. Even when God answers, sometimes we're slow to believe it. You've probably heard the story about the adult bookstore that was to open on Main Street in a certain town, right? Christians in that town decided to hold an all-night prayer vigil to shut down that business, and the doors would never open. That night, as they were praying, lightning struck the bookstore, and the whole place burned to the ground. Well, the owner immediately sued the church, <laughs> claimed that they were responsible. And the church, in response, hired a lawyer denying responsibility. And after hearing both sides, the judge concluded, it seems hard to determine guilt in this case, but one thing is certain. The bookstore owner believes in the power of prayer, and the church does not. That hurts, doesn't it? It really does. But it's so true. How serious are you about prayer? The scene here is pretty comical, really. The answer to their prayers is knocking at the door, but they don't have enough faith to open the door and let him in. God got Peter out of the prison, but Peter can't get himself into a prayer meeting on his behalf. And finally, they let him in, and he didn't stay long, and no one knows where he went to this very day. Interestingly enough, apart from a brief appearance in Acts chapter 15, we never see or hear from Peter again in the book of Acts. Incredible story. Miraculous rescue. A valuable lesson. Prayer is the means by which the people of God will triumph over evil. We need that confidence. We need the reminder. When we're up against the impossible situations, powerful prayer should emerge. When we're facing impenetrable odds, fervent prayer can empower us. And to remind ourselves that answered prayer sometimes emphasizes the immaturity of our faith. But Luke throws one more incident into this whole text here, which seems almost unrelated, but drives one final principle home. And it's this. Prevailing prayer emancipates us from an immobilizing foe. The rest of the chapter, uh, rest of the verses here, read along with me from 18 to 24. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have happened to Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. Well, that's interesting. Peter was supposed to be executed. Now his captors are being executed. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. 
Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And for one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Gross. Painful. Historically documented. But look at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. You see that? Prevailing prayer emancipates, emancipates us from an immobilizing foe. God deals with our enemies through the power of prayer. Not always quickly, but we can be sure that as the judge of all the earth, he will always do right. That's Genesis 18.25. Prayer sometimes has unforeseen results, doesn't it? You can't help but marvel at the way God reverses this whole situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on a tear. He's persecuting the church and he's killing its leaders. At the end of the chapter, he's the one that's dead. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, Herod gloating. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God multiplying. What a change of circumstances, huh? In 24 verses. Such is the power of God. Such is the prospect of our prayer. Maybe this experience is exactly what Peter had in the back of his mind as he quoted the Psalms in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Peter said this, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't care what's happening out in the world. You can rest in a verse like this, that one day, one day, the righteous will be exonerated, and the evil will be put to death. The church is no stranger to people like Herod. We see this every day in the news. It still suffers because of people who use their authority to violently oppose the truth. But the church of God will not triumph over evil by lobbying Congress or by pulling a few strings. It will win over evil the same way that the people of God always have, by lobbying their Savior and pushing in in prayer. That's how the people of God will triumph. In Bishop Wellington Boone's ministry, they have an acronym for this, this type of prayer life that is necessary for bringing change. The acronym, the acronym is PUSH, P-U-S-H, which stands for Pray Until Something Happens. Warren Wiersbe put it so plainly, he said, the early church had no political clout or friends in high places to pull strings for them. Instead, they went to the highest throne of all, the throne of grace. And they were a praying people, for they knew God would solve their problems. God's glorious throne was greater than the throne of Herod, and God's heavenly army could handle Herod's weak soldiers any day or night. The believers did not need to bribe anyone in the court. They simply took their case to the highest court and left it with the Lord. And what was the result? The Word of God grew and multiplied. Simple, 
heartfelt, diligent prayer is the means by which the people of God will triumph over evil in the world. It emerges in impossible situations. It empowers us against impenetrable odds. It sometimes emphasizes our immaturity and our faith. But ultimately, it emancipates us from an immobilizing foe. So push, people. Push. Pray until something happens. Amen?